Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. This is going to be a great episode with Eric Forrest. I believe this is episode number 202. And we're going to be t- picking Eric's brain today about coos deer. And this is a young guy that has grown up hunting coos deer down by Tucson, uh, born and raised with these deer and has a lot of experience. Uh, his dad's somewhat of a bow hunting legend here in the state of Arizona and um, it's uh, going to be a great episode. Uh, before we get to that, I want to remind you that Go Hunt Insider is the title sponsor of the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. And there's a few big things going on at GoHunt.com Insider. Uh, they just launched uh, Oregon today. This is a big deal. Uh, GoHunt.com Insiders had a ton of requests uh, for which they didn't really expect. Uh, but we're overwhelmed with the amount of hunters that wanted uh, Oregon uh, draw odds. And so uh, now you can go to GoHunt.com Insider and check out uh, the uh, Oregon uh, draw statistics. The actual draw odds will not be live yet. They should go live around January 1st. Um, but it's going to leave plenty of time before the May application deadline. But it's awesome to see GoHunt.com's finally getting uh, Oregon in the pipeline. Uh, also, the October giveaway is 10 Sunto watches. Uh, each Insider member is automatically uh, entered. Uh, all you have to do is be an Insider member. Every month they give away great gear and great hunts. Uh, so that's one of the perks of being a member. Uh, GoHunt.com also has had a lot of requests from people wanting to order uh, GoHunt hats. And they just launched a store which is exclusively available to insiders. All hats are $20, including free shipping. Uh, the, the, the link for that is GoHunt.com forward slash shop. Uh, and you can click on the shop button in the header of the site as well. Uh, also, GoHunt.com is working hard on year-over-year draw odds. Uh, this will be a very nice enhancement as you can compare from one year to another. Um, as you can imagine, this will include more data and allow people to find important trends. Uh, additionally, they're uh, going to be adding the guided draw for New Mexico and Nevada. And finally, they'll have the Arizona draw odds, which we're all excited for. You know, Arizona Game and Fish threw a little bit of a loop uh, into Go Hunt Insider in that they changed the uh, non-resident cap rule from 10% to being 5% go uh, to the the people with the most bonus points in that hunt code, and then 5% completely random. So. Uh, in this last draw cycle, GoHunt Insider didn't want to release odds that weren't 100% uh, correct. Uh, it would be more of kind of a guess. So uh, this year for uh, the new elk and deer applications in February, uh, GoHunt.com is going to have, uh, the Insider is going to have Arizona and have accurate uh, draw odds with that new 5% change. Uh, so pretty cool stuff. Um, GoHunt.com insiders working very closely with the game and fish departments to get all the data that they need. Uh, and Arizona will be live before the end of the year. Uh, and we're hoping uh, by, by early November uh, the Arizona draws will be up. So pretty exciting stuff. Um, all you have to do is go to GoHunt.com forward slash Scott and uh, sign up and use the J. Scott promo code and you'll get a $50 Kuyu uh, gift card just, just for signing up. And that will get you in the monthly drawings and will get you access to the full Insider website where you can go check out all the statistics and draws and um, find those hunts, that are, those hidden gems and be able to research um, all your own hunts, all your own statistics. So uh, pretty cool stuff. I want to thank GoHunt.com uh, Insider for their sponsorship. Uh, I'd also like to thank my additional sponsors, the Outdoorsmans.com, Phonescope.com, and Real Game Calls. 
www.thepowerofpositivity.com. Uh, guys, I want to thank you for your attention and uh, for all your support of my podcast. Uh, you can go to jscottoutdoors.com if you're a first-time listener, and that will get you linked in with my social media uh, stuff, my Instagram, my YouTube, my Facebook uh, page, and uh, tag your success photos. I got a lot of testimonials uh, during elk season, uh, maybe, I don't know, 18 or 20 of them. Uh, guys saying specifically used information off the podcast, and then they hashtag J Scott Outdoors or hashtag J Scott Outdoors podcast on Instagram. And uh, I was able to share those testimonials. Uh, with you guys so you can go on my instagram page and check that out if you'd like to send me an email you can at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com i appreciate each and every email that i get Uh, if you want to give me a suggestion of someone to have on the podcast or a topic or a question uh, that's a great place to do it you can also send me messages through any of my uh, social media platforms um, also subscribe to the podcast. I've had several people, uh, send me emails or, or actually I've talked to a few people that, uh, said they don't get updates when the new episodes are uploaded. Well, all you have to do is subscribe. It's free. Just hit the subscribe button. Um, and as soon as I upload a new episode, it will automatically come on your device. And, um, yeah, I'd love to hear from you guys. Send me an email. Um, we're right in the middle of the 2016 fall hunting season and uh, I was fortunate to just get back uh, coos deer hunting uh, with uh, Dar and his youngest son Paul Colburn I believe Paul is 11 years old and he just uh, harvested his second deer last year he got a a, a deer a coos deer and and uh, shot another deer and we had a great hunt and had kind of a hellacious pack out and uh, it was just an awesome time to get to spend uh, watching Dar with his uh, with his boy. And um, Parker, we had a couple great hunts last year, and Parker shot a big bull this year. And um, the Colburn, those those boys are uh, uh, hit the ground running and and uh, fallen right uh, after their dad and uh, following in his footsteps of being a great hunter. So uh, love to hear the success. Um, Let's get right to this episode uh, with Eric Forrest. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we've got Eric Forrest. And Eric Forrest, I've I've never met Eric, um, but I follow him on Instagram. And uh, his dad is Rick Forrest. And Rick is somewhat of an Arizona hunting uh, archery legend uh, in Arizona. Uh, these guys live in southern Arizona and live and breathe coos deer and live and breathe bow hunting. Uh, but Eric is a, a fine hunter himself and uh, thought this would be a good time to get Eric on the phone and talk to him a little bit about the coos deer hunts coming up. Uh, a lot of these early season hunts are kicking off here in the next few days. And Arizona, uh, well, let me, let, me, let me say hi, Eric. How you doing? Pretty good, you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Um, you know, I've got to give you a hard time. I'm a hardcore uh, Sun Devil. I went to ASU and graduated from there and been going to ASU football games ever since I was five years old. And um, my cousin is probably the only one in our family that actually went down to that other university. And <laughs> that. Uh, so, w- so what happened? Um, you applied for ASU but couldn't get in, so you had to go to the U of no. A or, or what happened? No, I'm a U of A man. I got to go to the university here. <laughs> I had to give you a hard time about that. Um, so you're a big uh, a red and blue fan, huh? Yeah, but um, I do betray sometimes. My uh, girlfriend's an ASU, um, going there for business, and uh, I just did a 5K with her and and I had to put the ASU shirt on and, and run over there at uh, ASU West. So I do betray, but deep down, it's all U of A. Your heart bleeds the red and blue. Yes, that it does. Well, Eric, um, it's going to be great to have you on the podcast. Uh, I love uh, following your stuff on Instagram, and I've 
been following you for quite some time and thought, you know, I'm going to give Eric a, uh, a shout out on uh, Instagram and see if you'd come on and be on the podcast to talk cooster hunting. Um, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of a background on your experience as far as cooster hunting and, and your, your being brought up as a hunter and and kind of kind of your bio. So um, I was born and raised hunting. My dad had me out just just walking around with them hunting as, as soon as I could walk. And uh, when the time came to um, to hunt, I went through the hunter safety system, and I was excited. Had a pig hunt. It was my first hunt when I was ten years old, and then I uh, I shot a mule deer, and then my next hunt was a, a coos deer, and just at that young age, when I had that coos deer hunt, it was, it was so different. And um, that really sparked that, some people call it that coos deer bug, but that I really got bit by it then. And uh, ever since then, I've just been, I've just had this unique fascination of coos deer and this drive to go after them. You know, I think that's that, one thing that people don't quite understand is that coos bug and it, it just jumps up and bites people. What is it about the coos deer, in your opinion? Uh, what is it that, that's extra special in your mind? I've I've always tried to pinpoint that. I think it I think it boils down to the country that they live in, and I mean even more recently they're they're expanding, but just the mountains, just the range of country they can live in, and the fact that their their entire range um for the entire population is so small you have mule deer you know pretty much all over the country uh but coos deer are pretty unique to arizona new mexico and uh, mexico so just the fact that they're kind of rare in, in the big picture um draws me to them and then the country that they'll put someone who was bitten by the coos bug they'll put them in some crazy country and that's just what um i really love about it yeah, I'm really drawn to the country, too. Um, describe to the listeners out there that maybe haven't been on a coos deer hunt, describe some of the different ranges of country. Because I, I think one of the things that's so unique about coos deer is the vast range. Um, describe some of that vast range to those listeners that maybe haven't experienced those coos deer. I've seen coos deer anywhere from the, the low grasslands um, around Sonoida all the way up to um, the alpine level around uh, the White Mountains of Flagstaff. And they just, they take that, um, they can live in that whole topogra topographical range. And it's, it's insane that a species is so versatile. And, and what's crazy is that they're even expanding farther. I've seen coos deer farther and farther out into the flats lately. And that's just crazy. Yeah, I think it shows their ability to, to adapt and, and, you know, whether it's pressure or feed or what have you that drives them to some of those places where, you know, you get on some of that what I call fringe country and all of a sudden, boom, there's a coos deer doe and a fawn and, you know, you're like, wow, I've never seen them out here. Um, I think people are surprised sometimes when they typically think that coos deer, you know, are in that range from, say, 4,000 to you know, 5,000 feet and your typical yellow grass and, you know, oak, you know, yellow grass on the south slopes and, you know, oak trees on the north slopes. But, you know, like you said, you can have them out in the desert flats all the way up to the, you know, ponderosa pine of, you know, eight, even 9,000 feet, some of the stuff in eastern Arizona up in the White Mountains. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy, and even right there around your house, uh, you, where you live, kind of in Tucson, you know, you see it all from right there on the desert floor of Tucson all the way up to the top of Mount Lemmon. Um, you know, you, you basically can drive through every zone. If you, if you ever want to see kind of the zones of Arizona and the zones of the, you know, Sonoran Desert, um, I recommend a drive and I'll get your opinion. I recommend a drive going up to uh, Summerhaven, up to the uh, ski resort up there at Mount Lemon. I mean, you basically drive through every single zone there that a coos deer lives in. Yeah, I, I would agree like 100% with that. It's, it's such a quick change to go through all those topographical zones. Um, and it's you get on Catalina Highway and you go through all of them. 
it's insane. Just it's like what an hour drive to get up there. Yeah. In Tucson. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean you can see it all. Um, it's it's a really neat drive. I encourage people to do that. And like you said, it's very fast. You can in an hour you can see every zone there, and um, you know you could stop at any point in time along that Catalina Highway and see a coos deer. Um, I I would ask you, um, I would ask you in your opinion though. Is there a certain range that the density would be higher? So if you were just to pick an area out uh, in any unit, uh, you know, that the coos deer live, is there a certain, you know, from X thousand feet to X thousand feet that you feel like the majority of, you know, a big portion of those coos deer live? That's a hard one to uh, answer because there's so many exceptions to that rule, especially in Arizona with units that do get um, hit hard. Um, and certain units have uh, huge predation, uh, predator issues. Um, I would I would think um, generally though that mixed woodland, the the um, you get the oaks and then kind of like the oaks up to the pines, that level, um, like five thousand to seven thousand is where I've seen the higher densities of deer before. But then again, there's areas where I've gone out and it's the desert and there's so many deer out there. Um, there's exceptions, but generally that that 5,000 to 7,000 foot level, I've seen quite a few deer. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with you. There's 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 definitely a lot of deer in that zone. Um, Eric, I'm going to have you bring your volume up just a little bit, um, just so it, it, it sometimes when it records, it doesn't record. Uh, so just bring your volume up just a smidge and uh, we'll keep going. Um, so... You tell me about yourself as far as most of your hunts. I mean, do you look m more forward to archery hunting uh, rather than rifle hunting? And has it always been that way, or did you just make a progression towards uh, really enjoying archery cooster hunting? My first love was rifle hunting, and um, I was just looking for a greater challenge, so I progressed towards archery, but. At the same time, when a rifle hunt comes up, whether it's mine or it's my buddy's, I'll, I will get just as excited for it as I do these uh, archery hunts. You know, I, I see on your Instagram, you and your dad, and, and is it your brother, too, that, that I see on, on Instagram? Uh, it might be uh, my buddy Tristan, actually. Okay, okay. Um, I one of the things that I like about your Instagram page is you seem to find some very large coos deer. And my question is kind of a, a in-depth one. Is it is it a function of you're out there a lot looking for those deer and constantly trying to find a big deer? Or is it the fact that you live in, in Tucson and you you know, have the ability to go out and know the country well and you just happen to be out there? Or are you specifically, like, trying to find big deer? Um, that's a good question. I, uh, I it, Being where I live does help, but I'm out there as much as I can get out there. And when I, when I especially with college now, when my time's limited, I focus on being as effective as I can in my time out there but I'll scout year-round I don't I don't have a scouting season other than like you know separating that from hunting season but year-round I'm out looking for deer and I'll, I do have the intent to look for a big deer and I'll look and like you were discussing those um, those zones earlier I'll look in each one of those zones and I'll put out camp as many as many cameras as I can and I, if I only have so many cameras I'll just keep rotating them around the whole year until I find a buck that I think is the one to go after. So in other words, when you're rotating these cameras, um, you're doing this throughout the whole year, um, even when they drop their horns, or do you kind of pull, pull up shop when they're, um, you know, when they're, when they drop their horns, or are you constantly trying to match, you know, like, split ears and you know sway back certain bucks that don't even have antlers and you're like i know that buck here's a picture of him yeah i'll i'll uh rotate my cameras around when they still have their antlers so the, the deer they'll leave and um around this the deer will leave around december 
and then all the way through to February, they're not in their usual homes because they'll have there's a like a little second rut in February around that ham um, javelina hunt, and they'll be out chasing does, but they'll return and then they'll still have their antlers, and so I'll, I'll rotate cameras until I find a big deer then and then when i have an area that i know there's a big deer and i'll keep those cameras and i'll keep it through to the growing season and i can identify which buck is which with deer tears or if i can't i can't but most of the time i look through so many pictures and see these deer so much that you can just tell by their face each deer has a unique face and it's something that i think you'll start to pick up on in time most people don't see it but every deer is an individual they have a certain look to them with um regardless if they have antlers or not you just said so much in in about a minute statement that there's a lot for me to pick away at here first and foremost explain to the listeners and myself what you meant by from what i heard you say um the deer are very habitual except for a certain time frame and then all of a sudden they go to different places. I would like for you to walk me through kind of from start to finish how that process works. And for the listener that's not familiar with coos deer, kind of try and be in as in-depth as you can about that exact thing that you're just talking about. Okay. Well, I've, from experience, and this took many years for me to notice this, um, this trend that coos deer have, but uh, when December starts rolling around, they're they're getting. Um, I wonder if I should start this from the growing season, because that, that's that's yeah. it's hard to start it from year like calendar year versus growing season. But growing season, once the deer start growing, they're they don't really they tend and not when, to. Uh, when it, when is that? Just for the listeners, okay. so they know when growing season is. When is that, Eric? So around. Um, Around May, typically May, the coos deer will drop their antlers, and at that time they're they're living where they usually where they like to live um, in the year, and so they'll drop their antlers around May, and then June through to September they're going to grow their antlers out. September, the end, around the middle of September they start to um, harden out and then rub their velvet, but in that time they typically stay. In, in one spot, be it, you know, a hillside or uh, just one little basin. I've seen deer during that time go on these uh, random walks where I'll be glassing one spot that I've glassed the whole week and some new new big buck will show up out of nowhere. And it's not that he lives there. He just goes on a, a random walk. And it's it's kind of a weird thing I've noticed. But for the most part, they don't they, – they, they'll go on these random walks, but they don't live in that area. And um, – I end up finding them in other areas and they're in there all the time pretty much, but they live in those areas and, um, until about, I would say, uh, towards the end of November. And what, so they shed their velvet and then they, they have their uh, hard horns and they kind of hang out and they feed, they gain some weight. And then when December rolls around, they start gearing up for the rut and they go off and they start looking for does until does get into heat. And they'll do that all the way through to February. And there's a short break kind of at the end of January. There's, it seems like there's two different estrus cycles that the coos deer have. Um, they'll rut around the end of December to January and then they take a break. And then February, around the time of the ham uh, javelina hunt, which is like the the start in the middle of February, they'll rut again and these deer are out still not, they can be where they usually live, but most of the time they're out chasing does somewhere else. So they can be outside their home range chasing does. And um, what, to interrupt you there, what kind of distance are we talking? Are you talking about they're pretty dang habitual, kind of in one canyon, one area, and then all of a sudden they go, when they start chasing does, are they going... Give me an increment. Are they going miles or are they going canyons or are they going like over five miles? I've seen them go anywhere from, from canyons to 
miles. I've seen it's it just it's a range, and it's just I think it just has to do with the uh, whether or not they can find a hot doe. So that kind of relates to deer density in the area, um, buck to doe ratio, all that stuff. But I've seen I've seen a buck. I was watching a buck one time on one end of the Santa Ritas, and believe it or not, I had seen him all the way on the other the other end of the Santa Ritas. So uh, that was about five miles, if I had to guess, as a crow's fly, as a crow flies. Wow. So, yeah, and it was a very unique buck. There was no mistaking him. So it was, it's shocking to me how, um, how far these deer can go. And I think a lot of people don't quite get that, especially um, outside of the rut, just for water and salt, these deer will travel a lot farther than people think they will go. This is awesome stuff. Let's take a quick break here. And uh, I want to dive right back into this. PhoneScope is a company that makes custom-molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. It is simple to text photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. PhoneScope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. Get yours now by using the JSCOT16 promo code and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at Phonescope, that's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E dot com, or on Instagram, at Phonescope. I have known the owners of the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix for over 20 years. They are the authority on optics and hunting gear. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods, mounting accessories, and pack systems for all hunters. Their customer service is the best in the business. Go to Outdoorsmans.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any products. So, Eric, you're watching these deer all year round. You're following them from when they drop their horns, drop their antlers. And and I hate it when people say horns because it's, they're not horns, they're really antlers, but we all say horns. So horns, antlers, when they drop them, um, then you're, you're continuing to monitor them as they are growing their antlers. Then you're searching for particular bucks that are growing their antlers and trying to find big bucks. Um, and then you're monitoring them once their antlers go hard and all the way up until the rut time. And then you see this big move of, uh, you know, bucks traveling, new bucks showing up, uh, bucks you've been watching showing up on other cameras, you know, miles away. Um, and then that February, that second estrus, they're moving all around. And then all of a sudden, after the rut, what do you see these deer doing? Um, after the rut, they uh, they kind of tend to just return home almost. They show back up where um, I've watched them in the past um, outside of the rut. And so you can almost, uh, most of these bucks I do watch, you can just, you can almost predict their uh, arrival. And so they go on, they go out chasing does, having a good time, and then they come back. And at that point, do they get real consistent on your cameras or is it a situation where, you know, before they drop their antlers in that late February, March, uh, April timeframe, do they really tighten up uh, their core area and, and, you know, you can almost throw a rope around the, you know, the, the country that they live in and it does that circle really tighten up um, after the rut? Not entirely. It seems to tighten up uh, when they start growing their antlers. And then when they harden a little bit, that so around that October time frame into November, um, the entire time frame being maybe from, I would say June all the way through to the middle of November, uh, they seem so, to be that time frame. They seem to be um, really consistent where they're hanging out. Okay, so for someone that is has an October or a November coos deer tag coming up. Um, what you're telling me is from when they start growing their antlers till before the rut, kind of that mid-November time frame, and then there's kind of a, a dead man, a, a dead zone there, call it. But 
you're saying that they're the most predictable uh, from from a standpoint of if you had a big buck, you could go up on a knob, and if you knew where he lived, you could see him the best during that time. Is that what you're saying? Yes, sir. Um, absolving that from hunting pressure um, of the rifle hunters, yeah, if there was no pressure, um, that time frame, you can you can bet on that buck being there. Okay, so that's a good lesson for people out there if they've got these October and November seasons. And what I think I hear you saying, being an avid coos deer, you know, follower and 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 hunter, but you're you know you're an observer, is that if you can find a buck, a big buck, and, and watch him in his pattern, in essence, if you draw these October or November tags. Granted, if there's hunting pressure that may move him out of the area, but let's say you find a buck that's not in an area that someone's going to move him out, do you feel like your odds of getting on that buck and being able to harvest them in October or November is very, very good? Yeah, they are. I would think so. That's why uh, people always criticize me for, <laughs> for uh, believe it or not, for scouting really early on. And... Um, I always say there's you can never scout too early. Scouting um, when they're about to drop their antlers for a rifle hunt, like I'm doing with my buddy's rifle hunt right now, it's it's helped us because now we have all these bucks to choose from, and the ones he's choose from, we know um, we can narrow it down to them and watch them, and we know where the where they're going to be when his hunt comes. So, when they're about to drop their antlers, did I just hear you right that that you really like the time when they're about to drop their antlers? And and then you'll hunt that buck the following year. Is that what you're saying? Yep. I like that time because um, that's when you know when those bucks show up, when they still have their antlers right before they're going to drop them, you know those bucks made it through that past year. All the rifle hunts and the last archery hunt and the first archery hunt of the year. And I know the only thing they have to get through is that archery hunt in uh, August through the September Gotcha. That's 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 really cool stuff. I like that. Um, you had mentioned about that time frame in the velvet when they are growing their antlers, and I've got got some questions here. And I've had friends that run quite a bit of cameras and run salt, and they run, you know, mineral. They run different types of thing, and I forget what's. Maybe minerals not legal. I forget all of the logistics of. Maybe you can refresh my memory, but it, it doesn't really matter. What I'm getting at is, I've heard guys say that they have bucks in the velvet, and they're very, very patternable, and they're in the same trail camera over and over and over, and then all of a sudden, they just vanish. And it's they. I've heard guys talk about the walkabout before. And, and, and the buck, it just will be gone. And it seems like it's right about that time that the archery hunt starts, like that third week in, in August. Um, what is, or, or have you seen that as well? I think I heard you say that, and I want to kind of pick into that because I've had other buddies and such say, you know, they had him for months, and then all of a sudden he's on a walkabout. Yeah, I've noticed that time and time again. Some of the biggest coos deer I've ever seen, um, I've seen on walkabouts. And then other deer that I've been trying to hunt around that time frame, they're not in the spot that I'm expecting them to be because they, for my um, reasoning, they went on a walkabout. It's a, I don't, why, I don't why do the, you think uh, they do that? Why do you think they do that? I have, I have often questioned that, and I could never come up with a reason. I don't understand why this, this, it might be whim. They might just get this, you know, kind of spur of the moment whim to just go over to someplace. I've never, I've tried to get into a deer's mind and figure that out, but I haven't been successful yet. So it probably drives you crazy sometimes when you're about to archery hunt in August and all of a sudden your buck that has been on your camera every single, you know, every couple of days, all of a sudden he's gone for a couple of weeks. And then he shows right back up, doesn't he? Yeah, I've never seen it go for a couple weeks. I've seen it maybe for a couple days, not quite to the extent of weeks. But, yeah, for a couple days, I'll just 
they'll vanish and I'm not sure um maybe it could be someone has a salt somewhere that they want to go to or a certain water so I've I've never really um been able to uh justify why that's happening do when do you feel the bucks hit the salt the most and when do you feel the does hit the salt the most and is there any correlation between the two as far as time frame um, I've seen does hit the salt year-round. They don't seem to ever peter off. The bucks will peter off um, towards the end of September. As they're finished growing, it just seems like they don't want to hit salt as much. But they usually hit salt the most um, throughout August. Um, June and July, they, they kind of start um, becoming uh, more present on the salt. But August, they really they hammer the salt in August a lot. Typically, um the middle of August through late August, and it ended like the first week of September, I've seen the most action on my trail cameras. It must have to do with finishing out their antlers, like when, they're, when their antlers are kind of really, really growing really hard, and right before they finish, it sounds like August, you know, just, just when they're really pouring on the bone, um, it's, that sounds like when they're most consistent on salt. How much of that do you think has to do with monsoon or when it's dry, do they lick more, or when it's wet, do they lick more? And have you noticed any like, oh yeah, if it rains, they'll be there right away, or do they, you know, is there? What's the time frame there with them licking? Uh, that, there's a definite um, correlation between the rains and and their activity on the salt. Um, I I know whenever it rains, and I get excited about the rain, not just because um. It's helping all the vegetation grow, provides more feed. But I know when it rains, I'm going to have a lot of deer on my camera because when that water gets in the ground, I think it gets that salt uh, smell out into the air and it makes the ground a little bit easier for them to um, to dig into and to munch on. Um, so, yeah, typically around that time, I'm not sure if there's a relationship between uh, how far they are in their antler growth and when they start hitting the salt and, that, and whether or not that might be coincidental with the rains. But I've noticed that as soon as they get their frame established and they're starting their G2s, they seem to want to hit the salt a lot. Interesting. That is all very interesting stuff that I'm so intrigued with all of that. Um, wouldn't it be nice to have like, endless amounts of time and be able to run like thousands of trail cameras. I mean, I'm sure you have, I mean, like everybody, everybody has, li they're limited by time and they're limited by resources, uh, some more than others. But wouldn't it just be unbelievable to have like thousands of cameras and have the ability to have, you know, in every single unit all around Tucson, just have a complete monitoring, you know, just, just like, I imagine you almost become like a mad scientist with checking your cameras and looking at all your photos at two in the morning. Yeah, I've, I've checked cameras at nine o'clock at night because just because of time constraints, you know, I wasn't wasn't able to get out until a certain time hiking, and it's been my hikes are far. I don't hunt um, close uh, to the roads much, so I I value um, working hard and hiking to get away from. Um, where most people hunt. So yeah, I've checked cameras <laughs> way late at night. Um, but yeah, I do fantasize about having unlimited time and unlimited resources to find deer. I <laughs> about it all the time in class. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. That's good stuff. Um, you you mentioned something there that I think a lot of people can take uh, away as as something that, you know, you obviously have great success monitoring these deer and hunting these deer. Um, a distance away from a road, um, why is that important? Um, why do you seek out those areas that are um, further away from the road? Just because uh, they have less hunting pressure. Um, deer are going to be doing what they usually do um, when those October hunts roll around um, if they're not being pressured by people. Um, and there's, those deer are going to be there year to year if they're not getting shot. So you got to go where people, they, they, you have to go either where people don't want to go or where they don't think to go. So I'll, I'll just go, I'll bust butt and um, go, you know, 
four miles away from where people people don't want to put that much um at least most people don't want to put that much effort just to go check a trail camera and see what's there and hunt. Um, or you have to go to a spot that's so close to the road, people don't think about hunting it. So there's a, you got to play the extremes when it comes to coos deer hunting. Um, that middle ground, the places that people do usually go is where, um, where you, it's, it's, it's harder to hunt. It's harder to find a mature coos deer. So I try to stick to the extremes. That's good stuff. Um, there's a buck on your Instagram page, one in particular that I thought was really cool. Is this name Stick Shift? Yeah. Can you explain to me about Stick Shift and when you, you know, maybe give me a little history on Stick Shift? It, it, I encourage any of the listeners out there um, to go on your Instagram page and and and, and just follow Eric and it's Eric E R I C underscore forest F O R R E S T. But tell me about that buck. So, uh, I, I grew up right next to my next door neighbor is Ron Grimes, who I consider one of the biggest bow hunting legends in Arizona. Um, and he was, uh, bear hunting and he had, he'd glassed a buck up while he was bear hunting. He had already filled his uh, archery tag. And he, he gave me a call after I got out of class. This was um, in high school. And he said, I glassed up a buck sleeping below me. He was about 115, and he got me all sort of excited. So he told me where he was at and said, why don't you go in there and try to look for him? And so the next day, I, I, I held butt up the mountain, and I got up to a nice vantage point. And the first deer I glassed up was him. Um, he was skylined on this ridge and I, he just took my breath away. There was just something about him that, uh, hit me at the deepest level of my soul that I need to chase this deer. And, uh, it was a four year journey with this deer. I would find him every year. I have, um, some of his sheds. Um, he definitely made me, he, he forced me into becoming a better bow hunter. And I only ever got one opportunity on this deer, and I had him at 40 yards. And uh, a javelina had um, had run up this rock chute unexpectedly and, and kicked some rocks out. And the deer didn't know he was there, and he um, he took off. But that was my that was my only chance at getting him. And after that, I had seen him uh, the first week of August, and he looked really really rough. And he just disappeared off all the cameras. So I think either a lion got a lion got him or an old age did. But it was a four-year-long journey, and uh, I had um, one of my friends, uh, Justin Birch, on on one of the rifle hunts. Um, and Justin had followed me through that journey. And I, after uh, being firsthand, you know, there hunting that deer, he understood why I was hunting him and. Uh, why it was so difficult, but he's just one of those bucks that you just, you have to fight tooth and nail to try to get an opportunity on him. Just to see him sometimes, right? And then, yeah. and then yet alone get in there close enough to bow hunt him, right? Yeah. We had hunted that, that one rifle hunt. I had hunted him. Um, I had seen him. The first rifle hunt I had with him, I had seen him once in a, uh, I was glassing this canyon that he lived in. I wasn't seeing anything, and all of a sudden, uh, he'd come running out of the canyon, and uh, a female lion and a yearling were chasing him. And I had him stop at 200 yards, and I just, I wasn't ready enough for the shot. I didn't take it, and he disappeared. And then the next year, I had that same rifle hunt. And I had a buddy, Justin Birch, come with me, and we looked for that buck, and we camped out, and we looked for that buck every single day. And the last day we were up there, we're glassing off this uh, rock cliff, and we could not find him. And Justin drops his phone in his phone scope, and it goes rattling down the cliff. And stick shift, he got up right up from below the cliff and took off. And the grass was <laughs> so high. The grass is so high, they have these little coveys in the grass where they bed down. And when they lay down, you cannot see them. 
And Unbelievable. So, only, so he's right below you the whole time, and he drops his phone, and then he goes running off? Yeah, he was within 150 yards. Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, why did you call him stick shift? He uh, he had this uh, G2 on his um, right side that was it, – it looked like a stick shift, the orientation of it and how straight it was, and it just the way it came off the main beam, it looked like a stick shift, so – that's how he got his name. That's awesome. And how, from that first day that your buddy um, told you to go up there and look for him, how did his antler configuration change in those four years as far as did he get bigger, smaller? Did he go up? Could he go down? Did he go back to up? What What was his, what was his, con first tell me his configuration the first time you saw him and then how it changed. The first time he was a, a, a three by four. Um, just a typical looking three by four, um, had that same, uh, time that kind of went back, uh, the next year he was a, a five by three. And on that side, his G3 on that right side had split three different times. Um, his eye guards got a little bit smaller. Um, his frame kind of seemed just a, a tiny bit smaller. His main beam on that right side scooped up more. Um, and then the next year he was a, Typical three by three, um, nice eye guards, um, just generic three by looking frame, more mass. Um, and then the fourth year, uh, all I got to see is just his growth up to his uh, first G2, but his eye guards look nice. They, I've noticed deer, they tend to kind of um, oscillate in their size when they reach a certain age. Um, and it's hard to say, uh, it's hard to say when a deer is gonna reach their prime and know when it's their prime. I, I think it's impossible to predict. I think you can see deer, um, some two-year-olds that are sporting a nice, you know, three-by-three three rack with good eye guards. I think those deer will have potential, but it's, it's. I think it's impossible to, to um, predict what a deer will be the next year. Let's take another quick break here. Real game calls featuring the elk reel. Real Game Calls makes innovative, realistic, and easy-to-master calls using their proprietary, revolutionary design. They are located and manufactured in Gypsum, Colorado. Their calls were designed and battle-tested on some of the hardest-hunted terrain on Earth. Check out ElkReel.com. Use the promo code JSCOTT and receive a 20% discount on all purchases. Go to www.ElkReel.com. Okay, Eric, I want to dive into what you were just saying there and talking about how it's unpredictable. It's hard to predict what the deer's maximum, you know, well, let me back up. In your opinion, is there an age in which the deer should be at a mature, you know, pretty darn good buck? You know, if, if he reaches X years, he's going to be kind of a uh, you know, maturity, and then does that maturity, as far as their rack go, does that last for two or three, four years? Does it last for a year? Does it last for four or five years? And then all of a sudden, then you see them regressing, or what? what is that age that you think, you know, that you've watched a deer, and now all of a sudden, let's say he's a 110-inch light buck, and, you know, what, what's your thoughts on, on age and maturity and what have you? It, it's, 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 I think it depends from deer to deer, but I think when a deer starts getting around that five-year mark, five years old, um, that's when you can really see what that deer is going to be. I've, I've seen deer, though, in, in exceptions that have gotten past that mark and they've gotten a little bit bigger, but the changes, once they get past five years, um, they aren't that big. I haven't seen any uh, drastic changes in rack size. I think they kind of oscillate. They might get smaller here, here and there. Um, I'm not entirely sure how old a deer can actually get because that's been um, tested. That opinion on how old a deer can um, get in the wild has been tested time to time. I, I have a buck on camera that I thought was old when I, I chased him with my bow. Um, back in 2000 and 
10 and he's still around and he still looks old. So, and he's still got the same generic uh, rack. He hasn't regressed much. So there are weird exceptions, but I think once they reach five years old, you can see kind of what, what their, what the rack's going to be. And it's, it stays pretty similar. It might get bigger. It might get smaller. And I think once they get really up there in age, when they're getting close to, um, possibly passing away, their, their, uh, racks can, um, regress tremendously. But I, I think that varies, uh, between buck to buck. Don't you feel like, and I'm sure with your camera documentation, there's bucks that maybe will never be a hundred inch buck. Do you believe that, that they'll always be, you know, a two by three and they just, whatever, it's a small three or a crabby or something, and they'll never be a hundred inches. I, I'm curious if you agree or if you totally disagree with me on that. I agree a hundred percent. Deer, just like anything else um, in life, especially humans, we're not um, outside of nature. When, we're individualistic. Um, we're limited by our genetics. You know, if I'm, if someone's, you know, five foot tall, they might not ever, um, get higher than five foot tall. And then you have people that are six foot tall and they might, they, you know, they might grow a little bit higher than that. Um, and then reach that point where they can't get any higher. Um, same as with deer and, and their, and their rack sizes. Um, there are bucks I've seen, I've watched, um, over the years that, or just like that buck I was telling you that I chased uh, back in 2010, that buck's always been a, a, a kind of crabby two by three. Um, and that buck's actually on my Instagram. Um, I I'd, I'd, I'd posted about him uh, being old on Instagram, but um, yeah, he's never changed from that. He's always been that type of rack, definitely not anywhere near a hundred inches. And I'm sure he's not going to ever get there in his lifetime. Very interesting stuff. And then have you seen deer that, you know, is a young deer and all of a sudden he's three years old and he blows up into, a, you know, 105, 110 inch, you know, young, young deer? Have you, I mean, how often? Well, my question is this. Have you seen that? And then do you see um, deer take a slow, long progression more times than not? or Or do you see, nope, some deer blow up, some deer, you know, go from this rack and all of a sudden blow way up or is, is the deer that blow up kind of an anomaly? I think they're, they're pretty rare. Um, when you look at the big numbers of how many deer you're looking at. Um, but yeah, they, they do happen. I've seen deer that you gradually get bigger. Um, there's a buck now I, I call Prince who I'm, I'm almost dead positive. He's the offspring of uh, stick shift. He lives um, right near the same Canyon. I was hunting stick shift. And when I first saw him, when I first saw him, uh, at his first rack, he was, a, a instead of being a spike, he was, um, or no, his next year from spike, uh, he was a three by three and he had really nice eye guards. And I said, he's got potential. And I watched him the next year. And then this year he's, um, a freak. He's got trash everywhere. He's well into a hundred. Um, he blew up. I'm going to keep watching him for another year. And there's another buck in there that, um, is actually bigger than stick shift was when he was a two year old, um, that I'm going to keep an eye on. And on the other side of the coin, there's bucks that do gradually get bigger. Uh, there's a buck that I uh, named BB, um, who I watched for, uh, the first four years, he was just a, a two by two. He just kept getting bigger as a two by two, and uh, well, like mass year, and width and everything, time length, or just just he just kept filling out and being bigger as a two by two. Yeah, his his rack just kept he kept getting wider, a um, little bit taller, um, a little bit more mass each year, and this year he just kind of uh, he just kind of exploded, and he's a He's a big three by three uh, with a kicker as well. He's about, uh, I would guess, maybe um, 100 to 105. But the year prior to that, he was nowhere near that. So, yeah, there's some deer that will gradually increase, and they just gradually increase, um, and then they'll hit a point and then slowly decrease. There's deer that will just exponentially increase, and there's deer that will um, gradually increase and then all of a sudden just explode. 
That's really cool. I'm sure it's fun to see a deer and all of a sudden go, whoa, who's that? And then go, yeah. oh my gosh, look who that is. And you're just like, look at him go. You, you can't even believe it's him. Yeah, exactly. That's really neat. That's that's really awesome. Um, mountain ranges around Tucson, you know, you've got the Catalinas, you've got the Rincons, you've got the Santa Ritas, you've got you know, further south, the Chiricahuas, you've got um, the Galeros, uh, what am I missing there, the Whetstones, uh, the Empires. Um, what is it about southern Arizona, especially, and in, in, granted, there's a lot of coos deer in central Arizona too, but some of those Sky Island mountain chains, uh, rich in history, uh, for someone that's you know lives in southern Arizona, it, to to you as a coos deer hunter, is it almost a privilege to get to hunt these mountain ranges that have so much history? And 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 to me, I hear you talk, and I feel like there's way more to your love for coos deer hunting. You said it's the country you like, and I can just hear you know your excitement talking about these bucks, but. There's more to it, isn't there? I mean, they, with the history out there. Of course, yeah, most definitely it is. Um, I do feel privileged to um, to live where I live because I can pretty much in either direction I can go. Um, I have all these mountains. I have access to all these mountains. Um, there's in, in southern Arizona. There's a lot of basin and range areas where. You, like we were talking about um, the Catalinas, how so quick you can go through all those topographical zones. Um, and uh, that's just, it, I, I do feel very fortunate. Um, and every time I go out, I'm reminded of that, um, just to be able to, just to go in this country. Yeah. It's unbelievable stuff. Um, you know, I, I know you've got to get uh, going. You've got uh class schedules and busy guy. Um, I think we will break here and uh, like to have you on the podcast again. Uh, I think we just kind of scratched the surface. Um, I know some guys are going to really love to hear you on the podcast uh, prior to these uh, later archery hunts, December, January uh, archery hunts. And so I'm going to try and get you on so we can talk a little bit of strategy and, and, and maybe you can help the, me and the listeners, um, you know, kind of understand uh, some of the things that you take as second nature and you really don't even think about or you think about it, but you just it's just part of what you do. And that's part of what I try and do on this podcast is, you know, pick brains of guys like yourself and a lot of times you're talking about something and it creates, you know, 40 other questions because it's, there's so much information there. Um, I want to thank you for being on with us and sharing some of your knowledge and, um, yeah, I love, uh, checking your stuff out on Instagram. I do got to ask you about a question on Instagram. There's a, there's actually a video on your Instagram page and it's a rattlesnake around your neck like and the the black part of the rattlesnake tail and it's the whole tail is moving what is tell me about that um that was just a spoof video um i the head was already (laughs) off and i just thought it'd be funny to i was still moving and um i thought it'd be funny to throw it around my neck and uh take a video just to freak some people out well, you freaked me out. I was looking at him last <laughs> night. I'm like, oh my gosh, what has he got the snake by the head? So are you somewhat of a snake connoisseur also? Yeah, when I was little, um, we, we had moved um, uh, just south of Tucson when I was about seven years old. So I had uh, this new huge backyard to play in and I, I just went rampant catching snakes and whatever I could. And I scared my mom half to death most times because I would pick up rattlesnakes and scorpions and tarantulas and whatnot. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, there is that love for reptiles too. I just like to, um, I just like all wildlife and just to, just to be able to, to hold it in your hands a, a different uh, feeling than watching it. That's cool. Well, um, thanks for coming on. And I know you've got some, 
uh, Cooster hunts. I think you're going to be helping some guys or going with some guys. So I wish you the best of success on those. And uh, like I said, I'd love to have you on again. Pick pick your brain about more information and uh, uh, love to have your dad on as well. And uh, yeah, just thanks. Thanks for, uh, you know, it, it's inspiring to hear you love those deer and following those deer. And I think the listeners are going to, you know, get that same feeling that I get. And it's always great to hear you know, young guys like yourself that are super into it and um, just just makes me feel pumped to know that we got guys like yourself out there carrying on the tradition. Thank you. It was a real honor to um, talk with you on this podcast. Right on, buddy. Well, God bless you, and uh, I'll catch you later, and thanks for coming on, okay? All right. Thank you.